This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate or support us through Patreon. Hi, For the Wild community. Carter Lou here. Welcome to our new series, Homebound. We wanted to put something together from our past episodes that has been helping us to feel less anxious during this uncertain time. Our team has been drawing on wisdom from the archives to anchor us and to help us navigate this new reality. We invite you to join us on Fridays to hear Seeds of Wisdom from the featured guest on Homebound, and we hope it helps. As our first offering, we're re-releasing this potent discussion with Reverend M. Kalani Souza, a gifted storyteller, singer, songwriter, musician, performer, poet, philosopher, priest, political satirist, and peacemaker. This episode originally aired in November of 2018, but we feel these words on preparedness are more relevant now than ever. Reverend Kalani asks us to consider, do we choose to be predators or participants in life? At this particular juncture where fear and scarcity mindset bombard us at every turn and we may be physically distant from our community of support, how can we choose to be loving participants rather than engaging in the hollow solutions of predatory capitalism? fear buying, shopping as a panacea, and the hoarding of resources. We're so grateful to have you here with us. And now, on to the show. humans behave and that will have the largest impact on the climate indicators we now see but to do that we have to address human behavior and addressing human behavior in a government setting where what we do is we say no religion no spirituality no emotional human element and oh yes the one other thing the u.s government will not pay for food so i think it's interesting that the government will neither support the sharing of food nor the sharing of philosophical or spiritual ideology when it's trying to build a solution because those two things are critical for the sustaining of the solution oh, 
Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Reverend Kalani Souza. Reverend Kalani is a Hawaiian practitioner and cross-cultural facilitator, currently working as community outreach specialist for the University of Hawaii's National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. He is certified FEMA instructor and serves on the Indigenous Knowledge, HUI, of the Pacific Risk Management Ohana, PRIMO, working to mitigate and respond to natural disasters. He also serves as a cultural competency consultant for NOAA, Pacific Services Center, and works for the Indigenous Peoples Climate Change Working Group and Rising Voices Indigenous Peoples and Practices in Climate Science and Adaptation with NCAR, National Climate Atmospheric Research Center. Kalani is the founding director of the Oloana Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 focused on community capacity and global response to climate adaptation. Kalani is a gifted storyteller, singer, songwriter, musician, performer, poet, philosopher, priest, political satirist, and peacemaker. For this theme month on the podcast, we're looking at natural disasters and hoping to have open conversations about what we are collectively facing and how we can respond in a way that sustains, transforms, and supports communities. We want to encourage communities both to come together as we respond to climate change, as well as to stop relying on government bodies or top-down change. The Olohana Foundation, which you are the founding director of Kalani, focuses on, quote, building community capacity, cohesiveness, resilience, and emergency preparedness around food, energy, water, and knowledge systems, end quote. So I'd really like to begin this conversation by asking you to share why you thought creating an organization like Olohana was so important, and how do you see disaster preparedness and community capacity building as being two pieces that belong to the same puzzle? Wow. Thanks for the question. Nice one, too. I get a lot of questions, so I want to comment on them when they're good questions and thoughtfully formed. So thanks. Um, Here's a caveat. You know, here at the outset, I want to apologize, particularly to our international or native or tribal or indigenous partners in humanity. It's a... an unfortunate but true circumstance that most discussions of this nature, or for that matter, most discussions around access and capacity tend to be designed for primarily American audiences, generally for the audience of the culture of modernity you know, that reflects the Western European world. But I want to acknowledge right here at the beginning of this conversation, there's a lot of other people in the world and a lot more going on than I think we get informed about in our standard K through 12 education uh, here in the world of modernity. That being said, I think that's the reason we created the organization. Uh, Olohana which appears to be a Hawaiian name or Hawaiian word, was the name of a chief, was the name of John Young, an Englishman who joined Kamehameha's court and was principal in establishing the Hawaiian kingdom. And uh, the name itself is just a derivative of 
what we thought he was shouting his name out to be, which was all hands on deck. And he was shouting all hands because he was the boatswain of the deck, which is the weapons master or the master sergeant, as it were. So from the Hawaiian or indigenous perspective, from the native peoples, we thought he was the religious leader since he was walking out ahead of everyone else and proclaiming something. And then we saw action by everyone else in the group. So our assumption was he was the leader. And it turns out the master sergeant is in fact the leader of that working group of people on the deck of the ship. So we named our nonprofit Olohana in tribute to the idea that all hands, all hands are needed to solve these global problems facing the world. And by that, I mean our adaptation to the impending climate change and how that will impact food systems globally. Large food supplies impacted by large trends in water resource, whether it's in the atmosphere or translated into soil moisture based on these giant sweeps across the planetary atmospheric indicators and the hydrology indicators on the surface of the planet we've been monitoring with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So it led me to believe that we not only need to look at this from a 400,000 foot perspective up high in the stratosphere, but we need to be able to take action directly on the ground. You know, and I'm talking a quarter of an inch under the soil. Everything from the cilia all the way up to the, the troposphere in order to understand the water bubble that we all live in. And uh, that led us to creating this community organization to ground truth or work directly with indigenous, local and tribal communities on the ground to verify what we're either experiencing as food producers in community or as the science community as we're observing these larger models and greater trends. Mm. I'm sorry, I talk too much. I know Julie says I talk too much. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I'm just taking it all in because this topic is, it's about survival and surviving in a way that we, that we can also have mental stability. And I, I, I just, it, I'm taking it all in and preparing for this interview I came across the three fundamental questions that seem to lay the groundwork for the Olohana Foundation. And the questions being, quote, are the children fed? Are the elders comfortable? Do women feel safe? End quote. And these three questions are so simple that one would think that a country that boasts about being the first in everything or the most developed or abundant with opportunity would have no problem answering yes to each of these questions. But the reality is we can't argue that any of these needs are being met. So I'd like to yes. open this up to you to share in your own words why these three questions are at the center of the work you do and how and why you think we've strayed so far from these values. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> it's really interesting. I was having a conversation with some other elders here just yesterday about this topic, about values and how the fix may not be where it is we are looking presently. And uh, from the indigenous world and the native tribal world that I've experienced over the last few decades, I can say there is a concerted dialogue around the need for our dominant narrative to review the values that exist at the core, at its driving fundamental center, to re-inspect what those value sets are and what it is that they are targeted at, what it is that that dominant narrative hopes to achieve by its practice. And uh, I apologize for being diplomatic about the conversation, but I think at this juncture, we should be cautious with our language. We should try to have the conversation in a way that invites everyone to the table. I believe that we may be facing the sixth great extinction event on the planet, and it could include the Homo sapiens. And to that effect, I think you're right that we need to talk about the changes needed in our society, in our family groupings, in our institutions, and certainly the change that needs to happen at an individual or transpersonal level. At some point, the idea of participating in the water bubble in a responsible way, responsible to the environment and our surround, responsible to society and the people that partner in survivability with us, responsible to our family members, and certainly responsible to ourselves around our behavior and the way we engage with all others in this water bubble. This, in fact, at some point is a transpersonal decision. Whether we decide to be a predator or a participant in life is a decision that is wholly personal and generally revealed to the self just moments before our last breath. I would like for us to consider these important concerns that literally make up the story of our personal lives, perhaps a little earlier, maybe between 7 and 14 and in an initiatory setting controlled by community that helps one move from child to adult in a responsible way. I don't know if the education system as it exists now has undermined our community capacity to develop relevant and needed participatory citizenship in social ordering. But uh, I notice a lot of charter schools and home schools lately designed to teach from a myriad diverse background of social beliefs and religious structures. 
I want to celebrate all the crayons in the box, but I want to remind the varying crayons and the diverse palette of colors that it's really not about the crayons. It should be about the picture we're all painting together. Did that I'm, make sense? Yeah, I'm, well, something that I was thinking about that really made sense was being diplomatic and really choosing our language and inviting everybody to the table. I don't think that we need any more divisiveness at this point. Not to say I yes. think that we should be justifying actions that are that are detrimental and and painful, but I, I also think that there needs to be a way in which we can communicate with one another. And the other thing that you were mentioning about responsibility I see a really interesting dichotomy that's happening right now. There's this piece of people feeling like somehow their actions don't count or, you know, it doesn't really matter if they vote. It doesn't really matter if they recycle. It doesn't really matter if they use plastic or treat, you know, it's kind of like, well, the world's kind of going down anyways or I don't really have power. People feel like they don't have power right now. And and then I, it's, I agree. And then I and I feel like then what happens is people don't feel like they have power, so they don't take responsibility, but then they go, right. Well, it's the corporations that are doing this, it's the corporations that use all the water, it's the corporations that use all the pollutions, so on and so forth. But we're not realizing that we are responsible because the corporations are extracting because we are purchasing the items that Absolutely. are in the use of extraction. So I think this topic of responsibility of our individual power and what you were saying about responsibility to ourselves, to our community, to our family, to our earth, that really strikes a chord with me. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think we need to get out of the mentality that somehow our actions, no matter how small we think they are, actually um, add to either the collective harm or the collective healing. Exactly. I mean, it's, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, uh, George Mason University in Yale in uh, 2017, between May 18th and June 6th, they did a study with a large group of Americans, more than half of which, 58%, believe that climate change is human-caused, that we're an agency, the major agency in it. Four in 10 Americans, according to this study, think the odds that global warming will cause humans to become extinct is 50% or higher. One in four Americans say providing a better life for children or their grandchildren is the most important reason for reducing global warming. Now, all this documentation about how well-informed Americans are about the global situation, yet the American government is pretending there's no such thing as climate change. I think that's symptomatic of the greater problem, which is... And I, and I mean this in the best possible sense, a lack of leadership, which is leading to the apathy in the social group that you're, I think, commenting on. You know, they, they see no real leadership. They see those that are the haves ignoring the problem. They feel disenfranchised, ostracized from either the resources or the political access that they need to make a change. And so 
they find themselves retreating into a corner of despair. Now this framework of modernity, it's intentionally put forward by those that are extracting and profiting greatly. You know, I got to remind us and remind myself that while the 97% of us argue for 90, for 5% of the, you know, resources on the planet, that other 3% is fighting one another for the 95% of the resources on the planet. And uh, it's amazing that as a group of people, we won't address this larger problem. And that's quite possibly, again, a transformative personal moment. Is it in fact about personal integrity and respect and regard? And then we start thinking on a larger global scale about stories like the doctrine of discovery, the papal bulls, and how they construct the framework around land courts and land ownership and the admiralty courts. And that all plays into our legal findings today. And so we find ourselves adhering to a man-made law that seems to be uh, weighted, weighted to support one particular slice of our society at the expense of the other 97%. So this is all very interesting from a behavioral perspective, but the truth is when that extreme event happens, when the great balancing effect happens, whether it's a large natural disaster or a catastrophic global economic collapse, when it happens, those systems, irregardless, and I can use that because it's in a comical sense, irregardless of anything we do or say will collapse and will not support the mechanisms that drive our society today. And so one has to be ready in that liminal space, in that moment of change, to respond. And that's where we began looking at this in a different way. At that moment, each human being is going to have to decide whether they are a victim or not a victim, whether you're a victim or a responder. This is what happens to us right in that moment of the event. And so we thought at our foundation, working with Peace Boat, with working with other community organizations and particularly children's groups in education settings, we would need to develop a new language, a new way to talk about this that enables people to internalize their own decision and their own capacity building to prepare themselves for that personal moment of change.
that's really so deep to think about this languaging and this understanding of being a victim or a responder and how we're going to show up in these very challenging and frightening moments. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts. One one of the many thoughts leads me to violence. And I know, gosh, violence has just permeated so many facets of our society for so long. Like you had mentioned the doctrine of discovery. But under the idea that climate crisis may very well lead governments to abandon their citizens and cause illusory systems to collapse, you know, I imagine that society will again take their frustrations out publicly. And I wonder how people are going to hold themselves in this world. You know, it seems to me that an important conversation to have is one where we can begin asking each other, how can we be proactive in the face of a future that could very Absolutely. well possess Absolutely. Yeah. yeah i mean if mm-hmm. you think about it deeper right if we go in deeper how can we be so aware and involved and yet we see so much apathy right mm-hmm. why is there so little progress re- regarding the communities mm-hmm. and one reason might be that human beings are apathetic that we're given to ignoring life-threatening conditions until the 11th hour. You know, we won't even run out of the house until the building's actually collapsing (laughs) around us. Right. But, but conversely, one reason might be we see more profit and more control with a slow crawl to capacity. So in other words, There's a multi-million dollar industry geared towards response, towards training for disaster. Who is ensuring the reliability of the supply lines? And by what companies and who provides it? Is it about maximizing potential profit? Who's providing, you know what I mean, for the service? And who's awarded the contract? Who's funding the equipment and the supplies towards disaster preparedness? Who's making the money from potential victimhood? Profits are made when communities are not ready. So when will we as communities actually become ready? That's a tough one to say. What I can say is what my grandfather told me quite some time ago. He said, preparedness is best done in advance. And that's not something we do. I know that that sounds crazy, but in fact, as a society, as people, that's not what we do. You know, what we do instead is we get ready for whatever just happened. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. When we talk about mitigation or preparedness, we always prepare for whatever disaster just occurred. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You you know what I mean? We almost never are preparing because, and here's the kicker, whatever just happened, there's an incredible set of circumstantial odds that pretty much preclude that it would ever happen that way again. But that's what we prepare for. 
You know what I mean? As soon as the hurricane or whatever, it, we measure how fast does those winds come. Well, where did the water get to? All right, then let's let's do something to respond to that. But it'll never happen like that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have evidence for 37 years with National Weather Service showing them that it never happens the same way twice. And yet we still, as policy, prepare for whatever just went by. Mm -hmm. We literally spend hundreds of millions of dollars. We won't spend a couple million ahead of time preparing anybody, but we will spend hundreds of millions afterwards. And it's a lesson we learned in 1870. It was called reconstruction after the Civil War. We realized, wow, there's a lot of money to be made when you got to rebuild the buildings. Interesting, right? It's so interesting. And I think about what happened in Cordova in the Prince William Sound in Alaska when the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. When the oil spilled, it was kind of staying in place for a little bit because the winds hadn't picked up and they were waiting 48 hours for any response from the companies who so-called were in charge. They didn't have the materials. They literally did not have the tools and supplies. Much of the supplies were under snow. Some of it was out. Some of it hadn't even been purchased yet. So there was really no preparedness. And then the fisher folk had to go out with buckets to try to get as much oil as they could out of the water. Of course, they weren't able to succeed seed because there wasn't the preparedness. And I bet you that if there was community preparedness among the fisher folk, if there's something going, you know, these companies aren't actually going to take care of this. Maybe there's other companies that are going to come in and profit like you were talking about, which happens all the time, this disaster capitalism. But if if the fisher folk knew that they actually had to prepare themselves for a disaster like this, I wonder how different that would look. And it's really... It isn't. It's kind of a form of insanity that somehow we believe or are so entitled to believe that somehow somebody else is going to take care of it and we aren't really responsible. We don't have to be the ones that are preparing. And then, of course, that after these disasters happen, like I think about the fires in California last year. Whole towns burned down, Walmarts and Targets, and you know you could imagine everything burning up on the shelves. And then what happens is so many times these disasters come and then people rebuild the same ways in the same places without thinking it's going to happen again. And we really have to be looking at the fact that these natural disasters aren't going anywhere. And we cannot keep rebuilding in the same ways, thinking that somehow we're not going to be affected the next year or the next year or the next year or the next year. It is this kind of, yeah, insanity uh, thought process. It's it's our language, right? Thought process, insanity thought process, our language, the way we define, the way, for example, see, we were just talking about natural disasters, but they're not disasters. These are actually natural processes. And then it's only a disaster or a hazard because people with their stuff are standing in the way. So it's sort of like 10 years ago, the wildfire came through here, but there was no Walmart. 
Right, but now we built a Walmart and there's an intersection over here. So now when the wildfire comes through, the Walmart is destroyed. But it's like, wow, it's a disaster now only because we put the Walmart there. So these natural processes, they fluctuate like all other events in life. They're on an arc, a curve, a natural arcing cycle of positive and negative influence. So some years they will be greater, some years they will be less. But overall climate change suggests that the less is getting lesser and the more is getting more, if you know what I mean. So we're gonna see greater, hotter, longer duration and higher impact events and less throttling down to smaller events now in the cycle because where we are as climate is impacted by our actions and activities. That being said, we really do need to prepare our communities and we need to do it in a way that makes us not victims, but responders, you know what I mean? So that we don't feel like we're dangling at the end of a leash waiting to be supplied something by some emergency service contractor, but rather that we're definitely in control of our situation and able to provide for ourselves. And that's a whole shift in consciousness. Mm, yeah, it is absolutely as a whole shift in consciousness. Honestly, I've, I'm shifting right now <laughs> just hearing you say natural disasters versus natural processes and how just in that language shift, there's a different relationship to the event itself. And Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I was writing a thought about the doctrine of relationship. Mm. Is this, in fact, a response to the doctrine of discovery? Like, for example, if we, rather than vilify the doctrine of discovery, if we take it instead and place it in the medicine wheel or something we might see more holistically than giving it that bifurcated uh, zero-sum look that modernity or the culture of Europe always tends to do, right? They always tend to have a culture of debate. They put things into two columns, pro and con, and then they simply do this ping pong match back and forth, decide which one has more on the list, so the weight of their evidence, and then they choose the lesser of two evils. But I think in the indigenous world, we tend to place things in a circle, in a medicine wheel, and it's cyclical, and it's seasonal, and it moves through a living expression. So in that look, I'm thinking, the doctrine of discovery, maybe this is just the north or the element of air or ancestry, and it's relegated to our past. And at one time might have held validity, but we can see now through our growth that it was erroneous, that it needs to be brought into harmony. And maybe opposite the North in the South was the doctrine of recognition of protocol. Whereas if Christopher Columbus had recognized that the Taino or the Arawaks 
were also people with families and civilizations and rules. He might have shaken hands rather than chopped hands off looking for gold. So there's that. And maybe in the East is the doctrine of creation, the feminine, the verdant, the thing that supports life. And, and maybe in the West is the doctrine of separation, of destruction, the way of the masculine, which of course leads to resurrection and the rebeginning. But might I suggest that the doctrine of separation is something we as a society do poorly. We tend to want to collect our gold toys and get buried with them rather than transfer our wealth and our knowledge to the next generation. And so in that thinking, I think the intergenerational transfer of knowledge is perhaps one of the big missing elements in our education system and in that initiatory experience we were speaking about earlier. And that as a society, we need to rediscover ways and means to transfer this knowledge in a deeply personal way between grandchildren and grandparents, reestablishing this deep intergenerational connection that gives us a relationship. If we include all four directions, the North, the South, the East, and the West, in this doctrine of relationship, a more holistic learning, a way of realizing our deep interconnectedness to all that is, we might develop a different value set that drives our society to a different capacity around adaptation and response to both each other, the environment, and to the society that we all want to serve in a greater way. Mm. Yeah, I really see a future in which that could happen, and I, and I so hope for it. But I, I want to get back to violence for a minute. And I was on this thought thinking, you know, how can we be proactive in the face of the future that could very well possess an increase in violence during these periods of massive change and transformation? So as a peacekeeper and advisor to the center of the global non-killing or for global non-killing, and of course, as somebody who is walking through this world with awareness, I'm hoping you could speak to nonviolent conflict resolutions during the age of climate change. And how can we prepare ourselves for this? You know, what does it require to envision a world in which non-killing is possible? Yes. And, and it's interesting. It begins there at zero to five. It begins with this idea, you know, it's so interesting, and that's why I wanted to send you the notes on these books and the look we're taking at it. And a little lesson called Hanai Kalima, which in Hawaiian means work with the hands. We were thinking the design is really with the children. It's really about this intergenerational transfer of knowledge, a way of sharing deeper reflective teaching that we perhaps may not be focused on in the culture of modernity. So um, I can give you an example of that. And it would be, for example, this simple idea at the beginning of the book around what it is that we do as people, as society. 
And uh, I'll do a little, if you'll allow me, a little excerpt. Mm, please. Nana Kamaka, to look with the eyes. Ho'olohe ikapepe ao, to listen with the ears. Most people see what they want to see. Most people hear what they want to hear. But if you put your emotions ahead of what you observe, you could be led astray. Indigenous knowledge seeks to remove personal bias. Nana Kamaka, look with your eyes, not your heart. See what is really occurring. Listen with your ears, not your heart. Don't just hear what you want to hear. Listen to what is being said. So, for example, those are just two of some of the early principles that begin to establish the ability to listen actively, to communicate deeply, and not for altruistic reasons, but to be self-serving. The fact is, if you participate as a collaborative human being, you will be far more successful. So human beings are basically uh, cooperative and compassionate beings. Given the right set of circumstances, they can achieve most anything. So part of what we need to do is create the right field of play, the right table or setting for our children to express themselves in the most meaningful way. And so, you know, I'm certain that there, I always tell my students, you know, if there's important things to take care of, really important matters, let me know so I can send the staff person because I only want to do what's meaningful. There's always going to be important stuff. But the idea of having a life that's lived meaningfully so that what I do is reflected in my value sets and who I am, it gives me a deeper personal experience and a greater sense of both sorrow and joy. But it is a life well lived. And that's where we're seeing the change. If we create more responsible human beings, more conscious, more ready to engage in the planet. They're going to be better prepared. They're going to be better citizens. They're going to be better community people. They're going to be better family members. They're going to be better brothers and mothers and fathers and sisters and better children and grandchildren. So really, the great change begins right there, transpersonally, interpersonally, with the family, in community.
Yes, I really love the way that you intersect so many pieces of this really complex puzzle. And I am thinking about, you know, just how you're speaking to spirituality and cosmology and this interpersonal, transpersonal work and connection and communities. And I'm also thinking about the ways in which you infiltrate large governmental, very strict sectors. You know, in the 2014 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded, quote, indigenous, local, and traditional knowledge systems and practices are a major resource for adapting to climate change, end quote. But, you know, indigenous people's traditions and knowledge of the environment have long preceded the field of climate science. And as a cross-cultural facilitator, which I love that you are, and you work with universities and organizations like NOAA, what are some of the most important ways Westerners and Western science and scientists can honor this traditional ecological knowledge? You know, what is it like to work in and between both sectors? Wow, that's, that, is, <laughs> that is a great question, you know, and, and it's interesting because really, whether we work institutionally, organizationally, in communities stratified by economics or social station or religiosity, you know, religious beliefs, you know, I've found that it's really moot. It really doesn't matter. At some point, we're dealing with the small sea of culture, right? At some point, we're dealing with the little things. Um, there's been so many great human thinkers, uh, philosophers through the ages, who've reflected things. And uh, I, I want to point one out, and, and I think he's done a great job of this, George Lucas. You know, and I think he pretty much got this through conversations with others in the field. But as Yoda, I think he put it best. He says, try not, do or do not. That pretty much is life, right? And so I think we need to honor that idea about doing. And government tries very hard. And there's a lot of institutions like the Nature Conservancy, uh, wildlife federations, and they all try terribly hard. But I'm not convinced that they do much if you are following me. And so the doing, I feel, comes down to actual community. And when we talk about community, some folks think it's community by political party jurisdictions drawn around registered voters' boundary lines. Some people think it's community defined by municipality or by state boundary lines, or there's a lot of different concepts about what that means, you know. But the fact is, community is actually family at some point. It all comes down to family. And so... We at Olohana like to work in that way. When I 
I, I like that word you use, infiltrate. When I've been working with these larger organizations, whether it's the Rising Voices Consortium or IPCCWG or any of the other groups we work with, NOAA, Pacific Services Center, the, you know, I have one rule. I do not do things as institutions, organizations, or even as strong individuals. I will only do action or an effort if we will do it as family. And there's a reason I want that kind of familial obligation to the effort. And it goes like this. Family always has that, that, that uncle that you don't trust around the young kids, you know? And family always has that crazy aunt, the one that brings up the same old argument every year for the last 10 years at every Thanksgiving and Easter dinner. And guess what? Next Christmas, she's still invited to the table. And so's that crazy uncle, because that's family. It's messy, it's dirty, it's ugly, but we still must persevere. Well, the way I look at it, the family of man is living inside this water bubble. And no matter how ugly it gets, we're all still in the same canoe. So we must, for the sake of our children and the next generation, figure out how we can all be here together in a responsible way that serves all of our purposes and moves the human race, propels us forward in a responsible way to the rest of the biosphere. One could say that in some sense, although I consider myself a Hawaiian citizen and a sovereign uh, person of the Hawaiian nation, I am a Jeffersonian and I do value American politics and philosophy. And I think Jefferson was a rational anarchist and I subscribe to that kind of thinking. I believe everybody in the world should be able to do whatever it is they wanna do, as long as they don't negatively impact anyone or anything else. Hmm. Oh goodness, I wish we all lived by that. <laughs> um, yes, and, and yeah, you see though, if we begin teaching our children, they will never go to violence, you know, in the global non-killing effort, we actually did a demographic study from 1900 to 2000 of all the wars in that 100-year period. And we counted all the victims of the wars, any violence incursion, and then added in any of these political unrest situations. And you, you realize that it comes down to less than 1% of the human population was involved in any of that violence. Mm. Less than 1%. Now, if that was diabetes, we would be on the verge of the cure. Mm. If that was cancer, less than 1%, the human race would be celebrating. Are you following me? And yet, less than 1%, we still all think war is inevitable. How is that possible? It's because of the story we tell ourselves. 
I know it's kind of interesting. The evidence is there. The facts are there. But any of us who have watched mainstream media in the last two years, you got to know what a circus it's become. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like, yes, the evidence is there. The statistics are there. A lot of the solutions are here. But there is this disconnect. Right. And I, I want to talk a bit about that disconnect. And also, I want to talk about Hawaii specifically. And in researching for this interview, um, you know, I was looking into what was happening with Hawaii in terms of the agroecology and the marine systems and the heating waters. And, and I came across coral reefs, which I know provide shoreline protection from major storm events and are a crucial source for food for local communities. And then additionally, the coral reef is at the center of, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, the Kumulipo, uh, the Kanaka Maiola creation story. But yet this acidity of the Pacific Ocean, it's increased by 25% in the past three centuries. And it's projected to increase another 40 to 50% by 2100, causing further coral bleaching and changes in marine migration and the ocean circulation in general. And then additionally, Hawaii is set to lose over 25,000 acres of land, causing nearly 20,000 shoreline residents to be displaced due to an anticipated one to three foot sea level rise. So I know this is somewhat of an overload of statistics, which I kind of just mentioned that we have a lot of these statistics, um, you know, on sea level rise, warming water, and of course, just the acknowledgement of ancestral connection. But these threads are so deeply entwined with one another that it's hard for me to even begin to try and vocalize these profound connections. But yet globally, the general public is so largely disconnected from the everyday effects of climate change. And this is only heightened by the fact that so many of us live lifestyles in which we sit in air-controlled offices and commute through underground subways and you know, spend the vast majority of our days lost in screens. But our daily actions, or really inactions, are directly contributing to the lessening trade winds and shifting rain patterns that are felt in Hawaii. So my, I know this is all over the place, but my question I think here is, what advice do you have or what work do you do to address this global disconnect? And can you give some examples of what it means to practice globalization, the global local thing, while standing on behalf of the place you know and love. Yeah, and tricky ground, tricky, tricky ground, right? Like melting tundra, one could say. Fraught with that same kind of disasters, the potential for a methane explosion any moment now, you know? Uh, and how to do that? How to create awareness while still protecting natural resources while we're living in an environment where our own actions, our personal actions have very little to do with the impacts we're feeling as they are generally driven by, as you say, larger societies that live in ways that are extractive and consumptive without their own internal awareness. So it's really tough, right? I mean, the American people think of themselves as a fair and just people who are really focused on 
doing the right thing for the world, and yet they consume 38 to 42 percent of all the world's natural resources, and they're only six percent of the population. But the Americans don't think about that at all. They just want to drive down to the 7-Eleven and grab that Slurpee. So, I mean, this is an interesting thing you're talking about. It's about value sets. It's about reconditioning population. What I've noticed when we're talking in policy is you can condemn pretty much everything except somebody's food. Don't be saying nothing about their food. Food is the thing everybody gets touchy about. Got to feed the kids, got to. And really, the production of beef globally has some serious impacts for us all. But we can't talk about the beef industry because that would be taking food out of people's mouths. So uh, we have to find ways to talk about it. So me, I talk about food security and food sovereignty. So we try to put diversified food back on the ground. What's really happened with our food supply is the entire globe is now being sourced out food by about six major corporations globally. And they don't want you actually being able to hunt or gather or procure your own food. They want you to buy it from them in some form or fashion, wholesale, retail, some form. So I think they have an awful lot of global power in terms of influence policy-wise, politically. And uh, wow, I'd almost venture to say through the pharmaceutical companies, they have military capacity also, as evidenced by the war over the poppy flowers. But uh, all that aside, the fix still comes at a transpersonal moment when people decide very personally that they will live a different lifestyle, live more in harmony and balance with the earth mother. And so we run into real policy problems in governance when government wants to separate religiosity, spirituality from governance, and for good reasons. But it has a sterility, uh, a way of distancing the moral impacts of governance. And then I think we further want to stratify control by economic access and capacity. And that's uh, a false indicator created by aristocracy and the serfs, which is also another false description of the human race. And yet, until we create the mechanisms for properly educating or indoctrinating or invigorating our young, into a society that is more compassionate, more inclusive, more in keeping with our environment, then we are doomed to repeat this slow climb and rapid descent that the human race seems to have been experiencing for a hundred thousand years. So yes. I invite any communities to get in touch with us at olohana.org or myself at mkalani at mkalani.com if you want to engage in some global mm. uh, ideas around 
the formation of community capacity in a way that literally puts water, food, and energy resources and waste management, which is a huge part of our problem in the world today, back into the hands of community at a small scale. Thank you so much, Kalani. This has really been an incredibly heartwarming and also very invigorating conversation. I feel like riled up, but at the same time comforted, which is such an interesting <laughs> mix. <laughs> but um, That's yeah. Exactly it. You should feel energized to do something, not mm-hmm. to try something. Mm-hmm. You know, try not, do mm-hmm. or do not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, and in doing something, you want to get fired up, but not in a confrontational or aggressive way of fired up or on optimism that it's mm-hmm. possible. We can yes. do this. Yes, 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 we can. We can and we it have may- to. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much Thank again you. for the chance and the opportunity to talk story around this. This is the only way we get stuff done. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, Andrew Storrs, our producer and editor, Francesca Glassbell, our research collaborator and writer, Molly Lebo, media director, and Carter Lou McElroy, our music coordinator. The music you heard today was by Cover Story Duo. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. We want to thank you again for tuning in every week and sitting with us in the complexities of these stories. Please sign up for our newsletter on our website at forthewild.world if you want to stay updated with our other projects and what's going on with the podcast behind the scenes, as well as rate us on iTunes. It really helps get more people to tune into the podcast and be a part of these conversations. All right, until next week.